Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And in a special use of the Kermit arms, I'm going to go ahead and wish everybody Happy New Year! Yeah. Ah! <laughs> happy, happy New Year, one and all, uh, to those of us listening who utilize Our the, great and small. Our great and small. <laughs> Those of you out there uh, using the modern Gregorian calendar, the rest of y'all, we'll see you in your particular marker through the cosmos as we circle the sun comes around. For those of our friends living in the Orient, the red envelope's in the mail. <laughs> Are we allowed to call it the Orient? Yes, it's a direction. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's the east. It's the... <laughs> I'm just making sure like, I... Can you imagine giving directions if you didn't have oriented... Like, wh- which way should I go? Well, about 30 miles China, uh, <laughs> then another 15 miles mm, China-Turkey. <laughs> if you go through languages throughout human civilizations, there are a few that, for instance, they don't have a sense of relative direction. So, for instance, they wouldn't say, oh turn left you know they'd say turn north or turn east or something like that and even if when you're referring to your feet you would actually say oh my north foot or my south foot and if you were turned you'd say my east foot or my west foot um i'm certain i'm certain there are civilizations out there who are just like they're not about like northeast southwest they're like oh go yeah go india word for you know 15 paces and then turn towards mongolia well, for everybody who gets offended by being called from the Orient <laughs> uh, and would like a little something to give back, the 
Orient comes from the Latin word for East. The Latin equivalent for the word West is Occident. So the next time you're called an Oriental, you turn right back around and say, oh, yeah, well, you're an Occidental bird. (laughs) (laughs) Please, please don't say that. Now, while we've spent a whole bunch of time talking about directions, it is mid-January in Chicago, which means the only direction that people are telling each other is turn back. (laughs) What mid-January? It's the 4th. It's going to be the 5th when this airs. You're assuming I get the editing done quickly. (laughs) But if I did, listener, (laughs) we're talking about a distant future. Yeah, so far. (laughs) I genuinely, I don't know what the next couple of hours will bring. I have no clue what's going to happen. Well, we do have to finish our 12 Days of Christmas series. And tomorrow is one day before. It would actually be the 11th day of Christmas. So these two lords are leaping to finish our final two holiday stories. And I figured we would come back to an appropriate January New Year's-y type topics. And, oof, baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> but I've got to go away. I genuinely do not, not where I'm staying right now because I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> where people, by the way, are putting on, like, full-on any Bauer coats for, like, 50-degree weather. Um, I- well, our topics tonight deal with some very common myths about the cold. Both the virus, the weather, the shoulder, the, <laughs> the stare. Yeah, cold stare, cold, long, cold stare, um, cold heart. And whatever you do, sweetie, don't go out in the cold, you'll catch your death. <laughs> All day. Where <laughs> that Long Island mother might as well just say <laughs> It just comes out as one long app. Yeah. Our generation growing up heard for years and years and years that going out into the cold unprotected would be the primary way you would catch a cold. Yeah. And I feel like it's about time we settle it once and for all. Yeah. Does this actually happen? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go from a microbiological standpoint, right? So pre, you know, germ theory, all this other stuff, for as long as humans have been around, if you go in the cold, you're going to get sick, and in the ages before vaccines, uh, before uh, good hand washing, before antibiotics, catching that respiratory infection meant getting pneumonia, and pneumonia meant death. So that was the kind of process that people would go through, and and it was a very good observation. You know, you'd go out into the cold or you'd be exposed to cold shortly after you'd become sick and shortly after that you would die um, with a, you know. So the answer is yes, going out in the cold can 100% give you the cold. <laughs> no, not a hun- nothing is 100% and no. <laughs> so, Short answer, yeah. being in the cold give you a cold appears like it would be yes. The longer answer is no, because it is not the weather itself that makes you sick but the viruses in the air, specifically, 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 the rhinovirus, the cause of the common cold, and the influenza of whatever alphabet letters it's gotten this year that can cause the flu. Yeah, H3N2, sure. 
Now, we've covered both of these pretty extensively every winter season. And if you catch them, which is largely due to being around other groups of people in large areas or having an immunocompromised system or just getting bad luck that year, it happens to the best of us. Or occasionally being around large people in some areas. The longer answer is no, you need exposure to the virus, which can happen year round. In fact, the cold is more common to catch in the spring, whereas the flu is more common to catch in the winter. However, I'm going to push right on through that common sense answer Uh out the other side (laughs) and tell you why being in the cold still does, in fact, increase your risk. Let me give you a really, really common scenario, right? So everyone is huddled for warmth in, you know, uh, Papa's winter cabin that he has built with his two Protestant hands. He's chopped down mighty oaks with his two hands and built his home. The only warm place to be is inside, and he has his his brood of children, you know, six, maybe seven kids. Uh, the other five or six have died from various illnesses over the past few winters. And, you know, it's a simple, straightforward thing. Uh, child number one is sent outside to get firewood, but doesn't cover up. Gets super cold. Gets eaten by wolves. No, no, Child but, number two. <laughs> Child number two, not as robust, a little bit younger, sure. Now when they're cold, uh, you got circulating, you know, maybe the flu virus. And it's maybe not super symptomatic because everyone is warm and toasty. The influenza virus disrupts the epithelium, um, which is the lining of the trachea and the small airways, allowing the ever-dreaded streptococcus pneumoniae to go from the mouth down into the airways and lodge um, where it will form a pneumonia. And now you've got little uh, Hamish coughing and hacking and he's spreading the virus around everywhere. Pneumonia is, you know, eating away at his lungs. And, you know, in a few days he'll become obtunded and then he'll have trouble breathing. He'll have high spiking fevers. And if he's not able to combat it, By sheer force of immune system, he will pass on. And now everyone in that little cabin has circulating influenza virus. You know, the next one to go out into the cold, uh, let's say... uh, Young Zachariah. Young Zachariah. So, Josh, now tell us when he's exposed to the cold, what happens to young Zachariah while he's incubating the flu virus. So young Zachariah is sent out to get more firewood as young Hamish is coughing up a lung and poor Robert was dragged away by wolves chopping up the initial bit of firewood. Some viruses are actually more likely to spread during cold weather. Rhinovirus, which causes the common cold, actually replicates better at cooler temperatures, such as those found in the nose, which is a balmy 33 to 35 degrees Celsius compared to the core body temperature, which is 33 to 37 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And another research study done by the NIH suggests that the coating of the flu virus, like the little protective envelope or winter parka that the virus wears, becomes tougher at temperatures close to freezing, making the virus more active, resilient, and easier to transmit in cold weather. Now, with rhinovirus replicating better at cooler temperatures and a temperature in the nose being 35 degrees Celsius, which is, let's see, we'll do a quick conversion for those of you at home. Yeah. Celsius to Fahrenheit, take the number, double it, add 32. 
<laughs> Alright, 95 Fahrenheit. It's an approximation. There you go. Yeah, 95. So, and don't forget, it's chilly outside, and the nose is exposed to that cold weather, so it's going to be even chillier. Those colder temperatures allow the virus to rapidly multiply, even in the moments that you're outside in the cold. And if you have your mouth gaping at the poor, wolf-torn body of Robert, <laughs> then yeah. you're creating a giant breeding ground. So... Zachariah grabs the wood, runs back inside, and, well, being inside somewhere warm might help because a different study noted that good ventilation and high relative humidity can actually help inactivate influenza A. And humidity itself is a very important variable in these diseases that are transmitted via droplets or aerosol. So, Santosh, as our infectious disease doc, what is a droplet means of transmitting infections? Yeah, so you think about uh, viruses being airborne, right? So they have to ride on something. If they're purely airborne, uh, we're thinking about agents like the varicella virus, which causes chickenpox or tuberculosis. Those little guys can just float on air because they're super tiny and very buoyant. So they can travel for, you know, meters and meters. Um and the, that's why if you have something like tuberculosis or varicella, you are in the hospital, they'll put you in something called a negative pressure room where the air can only travel from outside of the room, inside of the room, so nothing can get out. Um, however, uh, cold viruses, flu viruses, they do not travel kind of suspended in the air like that. They travel in a little tiny bubble of liquid. And those little, tiny little bubbles of liquid do not travel as far. They can go as far as you can eject in a cough or a sneeze. And this just does depend on if you're like a little tiny kid. If you're three, four years old, you can't actually sneeze or cough with enough force to eject those particles. But a fully grown human being with a forceful sneeze, like 30, range of the droplets when you're just talking is anywhere between three to five feet. But if you give like a nice forceful cough or a sneeze anywhere from 10 to even 30 feet, um, those, those little droplets can travel before they fall to the ground and they're no longer infectious down there unless you're actually like putting your hands or face on the ground. And not <laughs> to mention, that. if you have 90% humidity in a room, tiny droplets are subject to the same laws of evaporation as any other liquid. And mm -hmm. hotter rooms will cause droplets to disappear in a shorter distance. Right. So if the liquid surrounding the viral particle goes away, the virus can't just sit there suspended in air. Um, you know, it's it's going to fall towards the ground as the, the, the droplet shrinks. So it's, it's not going to be able to stick around. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, in order to replicate, it needs a certain temperature. But then... Uh, you know, if you raise the temperature and, you know, you get it a little bit humid, um, you know, those little droplets can't travel as far. Um, so it makes it a little bit less infectious. So Zachariah was incubating the flu virus. Um, by the way, people had a hint of something called miasma at this time. 
that illness could come with like foul smelling stuff so that they knew something was transported through the air. But, you know, you can't really smell the flu virus being around. They thought maybe they were safe inside. But now, Josh, you've got kind of two bad factors. It is warm, but it's dry inside the inside the log cabin that's being heated by the fire because um, the ambient air is dry because of winter time and then you know you're you're inside in you know warm air where it's a relatively small cabin full of like wood smoke so what you're telling me is that even though you can't specifically catch an infection from going out into the cold you can yeah. be more at risk from infections which are tougher in the cold weather and then you come back into the warm weather and you are equally screwed because now in the warm weather those viruses take off their protections and replicate like rabbits <laughs> you can and to just make matters just a little bit worse uh, people are huddling for warmth, right? Zachariah is trying to snuggle up next to mom, and even worse, trying to snuggle up next to the little kids who are even more vulnerable, the, the little three-month-old and the one-year-old and the four-year-old. Or maybe they're trying to snuggle up to grandma, who's like 50 or 60. Well, it's a good thing that grandma's around and surprisingly still alive at the ripe old age of 50, because... That is. She, she is the ancient matriarch of this particular cabin. Because it is grandma who has the best medicine and also the warning that, you know, wear a hat as we have our <laughs> log cabin, Long Island. <laughs> but I want so badly to see pilgrims with a Long Island accent. <laughs> hey, hey, where are you landing your boat? <laughs> Don't forget your double buckles. It's a good thing that Grandma's still alive and around because she's yeah. going to be the only one who has the magic elixir that could cure all, and that, of course, is chicken soup. So she's going to send Zachariah <laughs> back out in the cold to execute a chicken. Yeah. She's going to read okay. read its entrails to divine the future yeah. and see how many grandchildren she's going to have to have before two will survive to adulthood. But the reason this is important is because chicken soup yeah. may have been scientifically proven to actually have some benefits. And it's long been regarded as a remedy for symptomatic, well, everything, but certainly colds and flus. <laughs> yeah, I actually really, really love this uh, the study that you sent me from 2000, which is the one that I... Uh, remember, I UNMC, Nebraska, one of quite a few papers um, where they, you know, researchers looked at broths, um, hot, warm liquids, and the, the ability for those warm liquids as you drink them to actually uh, break up mucus um, and allow you to kind of swallow all that, you know, runny nose and all that gunk in there. Also, whether or not the actual components of the chicken soup they help the immune system. They do. To Every fight individual off component, except for the chicken itself, has, cyto <laughs> has cytotoxic activities and inhibits neutrophil movement, meaning it's yeah. Jewish penicillin. It keeps the fever down. It helps yeah. prevent the inflammatory response where all your neutrophils and cytotoxic killer cells 
are rushing to attack these bacteria. And the increased humidity, liquid, and energy are all great for you as well. Not to mention warm soup helps to loosen up that congestion. And this was really, really cool, right? Because it was done on tissue culture where they used components of actual chicken soup, like the molecular components. So... Um, it, it was kind of nice because this paired with some of the other clinical studies where they actually had, you know, humans just drinking soup and seeing if they responded, that it actually is the chicken broth itself versus, you know, any other broth, which I guess us vegetarians are just like hosed. Well, my favorite um, part of the study is that they went out of their way to say specifically grandma soup only because you may not get some of these same <laughs> benefits with canned mass-produced soups due to the various right. preservatives, increases in sodium content, and when and where the vegetables were during the preservation process. So it really yeah. is score one for the old wives. <laughs> it is. And, you know, as long as grandma is around and she's making the soup, you get better. But poor grandma, if she gets sick, she's going down. As you can tell, we've really run with the frontier Christmas and New Year's <laughs> theme on this particular one. So let's yeah. let's leave this family behind. And yeah, and so hopefully they'll be back when we. Oh God! <laughs> and, and check in with their descendants who have learned yeah. to adapt to the cold because Santosh. Humans can adapt to a wide variety of climates, and you may be wondering, how can you live in sunny California where it is 60 degrees and everybody throws on their Uggs and scarves, yet we both <laughs> cool in Chicago, which experiences temperatures that are significantly lower? That's the neatest thing about the human species, right? Is, is that we're not specialists. We actually kind of suck. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, at, that's the great thing know, about the human species. <laughs> we're not specialists. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the truth. We're not specialists. We, we aren't these amazing really niche organisms that can only thrive in one particular environment. But then again, if you put us in that environment, we just kick everybody's ass kind of thing. No, we are okay or semi-okay at conquering a variety of challenges, whether they're environmental or physical or intellectual. Um, and, you know, that that's the big adaptation that we... But interestingly, Josh, as you're about to tell us, they have evolutionary, like mini microevolutionary adaptations that make them, you know, kind of genealogically a little bit distinct from other peoples around the world. Audience, prepare yourselves. We are around the world, jacks of all trades, and now I'm about to give you some tips on jacking it in different temperatures. You're a horrible human being. <laughs> we're not. Oh, just so. Please, please tell me we're not going to degenerate into masturbation jokes. I beg you. What? The very thought. <laughs> don't, don't you dare. You are filthy. No, no, no. I was no. referring to the different physiological changes that we can learn to induce when moving to a new climate. That is disgusting. What the hell does uh, that have to audience, do with the verb jack? Audience, please ignore <laughs> the perverted mind of Dr. Santosh as I teach uh. you how to hijack 
your physiological <laughs> systems. I your, thought we had left this behind in 2018, Josh. How do you deal this was be a with new year? cold adaptation? Well, typically, it takes twice as long uh, as heat adaptation. So about four weeks to adapt to a cold environment as opposed to two weeks for a hot environment. And the body will undergo the following changes that if you live in a location for generations can become even more extreme. But first off, extreme (laughs) adaptations. Okay. So first off, your blood vessels change. When skin temperatures dip below 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius, your blood vessels begin to exhibit cycles where they go through periods of widening or dilation, allowing increased rapid blood flow through your body that causes your skin to heat up, as well as constriction that causes much faster but narrower blood flow supplying your vital organs. And your body attempts to manage a trade-off between keeping warm blood close to the internal organs without suffering any long-term damage to the extremities such as frostbite or frostnip. Yeah, and the, the key here is to think about the body as kind of the central area, heart, brain, lungs, and viscera, so your intestines, and the periphery, which is essentially your limbs and the skin going all the way out to the tips of your toes and your fingers. And the neat thing about this is that you you want to have as much warmth and blood shunted to the brain and the heart as possible because that's what keeps you alive. Okay, and we're we're talking teleologically, meaning kind of giving all these organs like purpose. But you know, it's it helps to illustrate it. That's not really my liver is writing the great American How- novel. <laughs> Is it about a herpa herpetologist? Sorry, <laughs> a herpetologist who works in conjunction with Benjamin Duger, plant physiologist. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was a herpa hepatologist. The herpa herpetologist was working on, you know. Also, herpes. this is the one who lives up in the but, mountains of Nepal, so he's a sherpa herpa herpetologist. Herpa herpetologist. <laughs> And with oh, I'm so happy about those jokes. And due to the periods of yeah. dilation in his blood vessels, our Sherpa Herpa Herpetologist will have a rush of blood and skin to his extremities that gives his nose and cheeks that familiar rosy winter glow. This is a temporary warmth. It'll it'll keep you know enough oxygen to those tissues to keep those tissues vitalized. But get this, Josh, your hand and fingers, toes, everything like that can survive uh, a little bit of starvation of blood flow for, you know, minutes to hours and then become reperfused without a problem, whereas your internal organs can't really go through those cycles. So the trade-off is kind of neat because you actually can, you know, shut off the blood flow or minimize it for a while and still keep your hands and feet completely intact. Now, as you become adapted to the cold, meaning you're residing in climates with residing in areas with cold climates, and this usually takes about several weeks, your body learns how to be more efficient at shuttling blood back and forth amongst the internal organs and the external skin, producing a much less jarring reaction to cold weather. This is why the exact same outdoor temperature of 40 degrees Fahrenheit may feel frigid in November, but downright pleasant and barbecue-y in March. You have actually adapted, not even within generations, right? Just within those few weeks, few months, uh, such that 
your your blood vessels have learned how to open close open close uh you know to to shuttle warm blood out to your extremities and then shut it down in kind of a hurry so it's it's almost like giving your blood vessels a mini like a little workout now the next adaptation that our bodies undergo in cold climates is we shiver and then we don't oh what the hell (laughs) no that's because the next step there is death (laughs) When you step out of your warm home into cold weather, your body starts to shiver as your muscles contract and relax rapidly in an attempt to generate heat. You'll see this a lot in those nutbags who go out jogging every morning. And if you're one of those people, I applaud (laughs) your commitment to physical fitness. I question your judgment. I was one of those nutbags, by the way, Josh. 5.30 on a, in a November, like lakeside, uh, jogging down there. And I'll tell you, I felt this adaptation because the first few days when I was doing that running regimen, I had to go in, you know, you know, gloves, hat, all that kind of thing. And then I would start to warm up and feel hot with all my winter gear on and I would start to run out, you know, in shirt sleeves. So like a long sleeve shirt and sweatpants, but actually not with all the heavy winter gear because I was actually feeling too warm for those. So I started to become adapted to where my body was generating the right amount of heat and exchanging, um, you know, blood out at my fingers and toes to where, uh, I, was surviving just fine uh, during my morning job. And as you noted, this shivering response will slowly be dulled. Uh, It is, however, important to still stay hydrated when you are running. And even though you're shivering less, you still have the same need to take in water. You're still losing through insensible losses and even sweating. So please make sure for those of you who do commit to running in the cold to stay hydrated. Yeah, and it sounds kind of counterintuitive and weird, right? Because, you know, the air is moist, you see it puffing out in front of you. But in fact, you know, if the the air is actually relatively quite dry, which means that sweat and uh, air from your mouth evaporate quicker. Um, So you do want to bring something warmish with you. You don't want to be chugging water the same temperature as the ambient air because cold shock to your internal organs (laughs) can be quite uh scary but yeah if you have like a little thermos where you have like room temperature tepid water and you can keep it as such i suggest a mug of chicken soup prepared in a recipe (laughs) handed down for generations from your grandma who grew up in a cabin in the woods now the next adaptation there you go (laughs) specifically yeah yeah if you can hey if you can swing it man god bless you because you have an angel looking after you. the next adaptation is your resting metabolism increases now like most forms of exercise shivering is primarily fueled by glucose in non-cold adapted adults uh, this was shown in a study of sports medicine done back in 1993 however Repeated bouts of exercise in the cold, meaning anything that gets your heart rate up above that 60 to 90 range, repeated Mm -hmm. bouts of exercise in the cold begin to shift your metabolism from focusing on glucose during periods of exertion into focusing on fat. So you can actually burn fat instead of regular sugar energy 
just by going out and doing stuff in the outdoors in winter weather. Uh, This increases how you adapt to your resting metabolism. And resting metabolism is the amount of calories burned when you're just, you know, sitting on a couch watching Netflix. (laughs) And this makes a ton of sense as to why our uh, friends, uh, you know, to the north, Inuit peoples, uh, indigenous peoples of the Arctic uh, will actually consume large amounts of fat. um, And they had traditions for killing and hunting animals that have a lot of blubber and storing that and eating that during the coldest months because just surviving going out and snowshoeing uh outside um you know having to do daily tasks was very exertional and if they didn't keep a a supply of fat around in order to eat um they would become malnutritioned very very quickly exactly Now, interestingly, in addition to your resting metabolism and your fat metabolism increasing, you increase the kind of fat, but a very specific kind of fat that you're building up, which is brown fat. Unlike white fat, you want... Hey, hey, hey! (laughs) We're going to get into trouble with this. This is no. It's it, it sounds super racist, but it's actually called brown fat and white fat because of the way it looks histologically. When we diversify our fat stores, brown fat is preferred because <laughs> it is metabolically active, like the intercorpuscular immigrants that it is. Meaning, it helps <laughs> maintain body temperatures by burning calories while white fat is typically useless for anything other than hoarding energy and maintaining the status quo. (laughs) You want to increase your stores of brown fat if you're trying to adapt to cold weather. In order to test this, they had a number of participants sleep in a chamber set at a variety of controlled temperatures for four-month-long periods. After a month of sleeping in a 66-degree room, the fat tissue, the brown fat tissue doubled along with their sensitivity to insulin. Resting metabolism also increased during this phase. However, all of these changes were lost when the same participants slept in an 81 degree room for a month. Uh, we should talk a little bit about why the color change happens because I think this is important. So if you have brown fat, you actually have a high abundance of mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. So that those brown fat cells are almost acting like muscle cells. They're taking the stores of fat, which are in little vacuoles inside of the cell, and they're breaking it down. They're also breaking down glucose, and they're producing energy for the body. So this is kind of like, uh, you know, an engine being revved up and actually consuming all of that fuel. White fat has a low abundance of mitochondria, And white fat is actually quite important for long-term storage of energy because it will, you know, those cells will actually not consume all the stores of fat. They'll just kind of hang out and will release the stored fat when it is needed, such as in times of, you know, starvation or famine. So those can be important and they can be very good for us. But when you're in extreme cold and you need to be generating heat as a byproduct of cellular metabolism, um, then you need a lots and lots of brown fat. And then 
Therefore, you need to consume those calories in the form of fat and sugar if it's available in order to feed those cells so that they can rev up and provide you heat and energy. Right. Also, you'll pee more when it's cold. <laughs> well, I just took all that time to... Fine, fine. <laughs> I'm just going to keep trying to drag us up this mountain and you just keep plunging us into the abyss. You gross out it's monster. It's through a process called no. cold-induced diuresis. Cold weather causes the body to shrink and contract, perceiving that it has too much water available. As skin temperatures drop from this blood cycling, blood is shifted to the core. With more blood in the thorax, the heart says, I have too much fluid, and I have to pee. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I want to actually say this is part of the mechanism why, uh, you know, two things happen when you consume alcohol in the cold. One, you feel warmed up, right, mm-hmm. Josh? And then well, the other what's is that supposed people. to mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely nothing, you vulgar <laughs> lush. <laughs> so the the alcohol that you consume, first of all, you're consuming a lot of water when you're drinking any either liquor or beer or anything like that. So your your volume does expand. But the other thing that happens is you get peripheral vasodilation, meaning that the arteries and veins uh, at the edges of your body, so your fingers, your toes, your cheeks, your nose, your genitals, uh, dilate. So this allows blood to flow to the outside of the body of the surface. This is why you actually feel warm when you drink alcohol. But rest assured that blood getting away from the core is actually cooling you down without knowing it, which is why it's so dangerous to get drunk in the wintertime. Now, when you have that core body temperature dropping because all of the blood is flowing out towards the edges of the body or the outside of the body, now you have the same type of thing. You have a relative cold, and so you get diuresis. So this adds to why you have to pee. Finally, as a little bit of fun before we talk about a couple travel tips, have you ever wondered, Santosh, when it's cold as balls outside, just how cold is that? <laughs> well, it, 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 I mean, I, I guess it's quite a bit because so the whole point of the testicles hanging outside of the body is because spermatozoa thrive a little bit better at a lower temperature than the core. So, um, I mean, cold as balls technically should be about anywhere between 93 to 94 so, degrees. Fahrenheit. Just as a point of etymology, cold as balls has nothing to do with our genitals. Yeah. At least... At least the origins. It's, <laughs> oh, really? It's a novel no, phrase. It has been shortened from its original cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey. Brass monkeys, <laughs> okay. those funky monkeys, were in fact were in fact those funky used monkeys. on yeah. naval ships as opposed to any other kinds. They were used on ships. <laughs> Jar. <laughs> We've reached the mainland. Lads. Jump into our land boat. They were used <laughs> cruise, cruise to back store home. cannonballs, and they were stacked <laughs> like coconuts, meaning they were led to be called brass monkeys. However, they would contract in cold weather, and cannonballs would occasionally be popped out of these containers. So it would be cold enough to freeze the balls off a of brass monkey. Oh, 
Okay, very very cool. Okay, however, I didn't know that at all. Unrelated to that fact, and more related to general cursing about the weather, yes, a young enterprising scientist, yeah. Jim Webb, a web developer in Washington D.C., decided to start following social media <laughs> to analyze tweets that correlated language and temperature. Every time somebody used a temperature <laughs> phrase in a tweet like cold as, let's say cold as a witch's teat, I did. Did you just say teat? And Webb would then geolocate oh, okay. the tweet and nab the real-time temperature from the world. He collected about 5,400 of these tweets between August 2017 and January 2018, cataloging often repeated phrases and matching it to a pretty impressive range. So if you've ender, ever wondered how cold is it when it's cold as balls outside, it's actually pretty warm. 37 yeah, degrees. Sure, sure. Average median temperature Fahrenheit. You're talking about relatively pretty warm for like a Chicago and Right. So most like of the time the when people saying it is cold as balls outside, yeah. by and large around the world, it is 37 degrees. That's how cold balls are in our linguistic estimation. Whereas <laughs> if somebody says it's cold as heck, it's 28 degrees. Cold as a witch's left tit is 25. Uh, Moving okay, up okay. the scale, if you've said something is actually hot as balls, it tends to be 84 degrees. All right. We're, we're going all hot fair as a right mother effer yeah. is 87 degrees. Yeah. Hot as Hades or okay, hot as okay. hell is 90 degrees. So we have a large range of something, and I just thought it was charming to finally have a definitive answer to how cold it is outside. So next time I tell you, Santosh, it's cold as balls out there today, you can be, oh, 37, that's not too bad. <laughs> Although I don't have as many data points, which, by the way, I was astounded at one thing with the study, how few tweets there were using these types of phrases. That's, he, he must have, you know, I know he looked extensively, but... I thought, you know, billions and billions of tweets. Well, that may be because people in between but, 2017 and 2018 had other things on Twitter to comment on besides the weather. <laughs> That's true. So it wasn't just uh, the weather. But I, I, I know now that you are going to be very accurate about which phrase you use because that's the kind of crazy person that you are. However, if it's anybody else, uh, I will say that I'm using single data points versus an aggregate of data. <laughs> Just imagining you as the worst meteorologist ever. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that guy's getting fired, but this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not he's not coming back tomorrow. But right now, this is this tomorrow. Is hitting like tomorrow, a it's going to be cold as balls out there. But we have a witch's teeth moving in. But if you started actually coming up with some of this stuff for barometric pressure and precipitation, <laughs> what would be the general equivalent of it's going to hail tomorrow? I believe uh, Angel Dingleberries. A 30% chance of Angel Dingleberries. That's it for our... That's it for this episode, as well as our 12 Days of Christmas series. However, so I don't leave you without at least one travel tip. Santosh, let's go over a couple interesting New Year's traditions from around the world before we sign off. Yeah, yeah, Estonia, sure. eating for abundance. 
In Estonia, it's okay. all about eating traditional New Year's food, and people eat seven times on the New Year's Day to ensure an abundance in the new year. That sounds like a good way to ensure that you will not <laughs> It have sounds like a great start to the year, but probably a much shorter... <laughs> <laughs> like just you know, let's drain the greenery and and celebrate abundance, and then like, oh man, it's Tuesday. We don't have any grain left. We shouldn't have celebrated um, the abundance. In Belgium and Romania, farmers try to communicate with their cows, wishing their cows a happy new year. Uh, presumably, if they succeed, it means good luck for the year. Or just a talking cow? I, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> the high jump in Denmark. People climb on top of chairs and literally jump into the new year to bring good luck. Ooh. Whereas in Colombia, men will carry their suitcase <laughs> well. around with them all day in the new year in hopes of having a travel-filled year to come. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, I just like walking around with a suitcase... In Switzerland, they drop ice cream on the floor. Oh, those poor people! I could not find. I could not find the reason why. No. France, they eat a stack oh. of pancakes. Taka Nakui Festival in Peru, where every yeah. year at the end of December, beginning of January, people in this small Peruvian okay. village fist fight to settle their differences so they can start the year off on a clean slate. Oh. <laughs> So you don't go into you don't go. I was right about this. Yeah, they beat the crap out of each other. Josh, this was the closest equivalent to Festivus with the airing of grievances. Exactly. Yeah, this was. I remember this very, very fondly because you know everyone was like, "Oh, Festivus!" And many South American countries wear colored underwear to determine your fate. Red means you'll find love. (laughs) Gold means wealth. White is peace. Uh, presumably green will help you summon Captain Planet. I don't know what the other colors are. However, <laughs> that's it for this week and hey, our 12 our Days hero. of Christmas. Next time we're back, it'll be back to your regularly <laughs> scheduled programming. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes as well as any of the sources we used in researching this episode. And guys, I'd just like to say we have a brand new platform you can hear us on, Radio Public. They do a lot for the podcasting community. And if you listen to our show on there, you will have to put up with a couple commercials. But we do get paid for every listen and download through that site. So, if it doesn't make a difference to you what you're going through, it's downloadable on Android as well as iPhones. And give it a shot. Otherwise, until next time, Happy New Year, and as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.